Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance access deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. We would jackalate rabbits, which is illegal, but never a deer. There was a code. There were laws you would not break. This episode of the Bear Grease podcast will be an expose on two men in the outdoor industry that you may have heard of. I don't like to air people's dirty laundry, but we gained access to these hunters and you may know them, maybe even respect them and their stories will shock you. Who I'm talking about is me and Steve Rinella. We had a candid conversation about the way we were raised, our history with game laws, and a few of our regrets. The intent is to have some honest dialogue, giving us a data point to understand our cultural history as modern hunters that will allow us to dictate where we're going. We'll also talk to Austin Booth. He's a lawyer, a former Marine, and now the director of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. I want to understand the philosophy of wildlife law enforcement in 2022 and the status of poaching. We'll also pick up two foundational components of the North American model of wildlife conservation that we all should know. And if you want the dirt on me and Renella, I'm certain you're not going to want to miss this one. That tipping point where you go from consumption to conservation necessitates you looking at poaching as a horrible thing that detracts from the resource. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore.
I was raised around, let me put it to you this way. Any of the, the, the hunters and anglers, any of the outdoorsmen I was raised around, and I was raised around many of them, any of them would have, like, have, if an if a undercover agent had embedded with them for a week or two or a month, any of them would have racked up a bunch of violations that would sound really bad. Mm-hmm. I didn't grow up around anyone that didn't break game laws. I'm not kidding you. Like anyone mm-hmm. that was serious about hunting and fishing that didn't break game laws because there was the ones you paid attention to and there's the one that no one pays attention to. And in fact, I now know there's a lot of them that we had no idea that was a law. That was Steve Ranella of Meat Eater. He and I are about to give an expose of our lives because if you're new to hunting, it might be hard to understand where we as a culture have come from. Let me restate that all this talk of breaking game laws isn't a celebration, a justification, or a stunt, but rather a crisp look into reality for the purpose of getting it right in the future. In modern times, for us to protect this immensely valuable wildlife resource we have on this continent, it helps if we're just honest with ourselves. This next clip is from the Bear Grease Render, and it's my father, Gary Newcomb, talking about his experience of stepping into the big game hunting world at the age of 26 in the mid-1970s. And so I was introduced to bow hunting, and I immediately fell in love with it, and I got to watching people. And I saw nobody. Now, take this literal. I'm telling you like I saw it. I knew nobody that wouldn't kill an illegal deer. And I'm like in a state of shock. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. I didn't have uncles that taught me that. I didn't have a dad that taught me that. Now, if you run up against Josh, and he's a city boy out enjoying hunting, you know, two or three times a year. Now, he's not going to kill anything illegal. He read the regulations and just did what it said. Yeah, yeah. But the, the diehard hunters, I'm telling you, from my perspective, you got to keep that in mind. My perspective, they all killed illegal stuff. So where do you draw the line? I killed one person. I killed 50 people. I mean, you're killing stuff that's yeah. illegal. And where is it bad? It's bad with one. Yeah. It's bad with 10. It's bad with 30. The prevalence of wanton violation of the law in the past is remarkable. But I feel like we've turned a corner. Of all the laws, wildlife laws are tough to enforce because hunting is done in secluded places, often alone, and animals don't speak English. They can't tell on us. There are various gradients of poaching, and all are bad. There are serial poachers that leave the house with the intent to break the law. There are those who are typically law-abiding, but they make the odd exception to egregiously break the law. There are opportunistic lawbreakers who violate out of convenience or to take advantage of a unique situation. There are those who are simply ignorant of the law. And then there are people that flat out make a mistake or misjudgment in the field. But if laws are broken, the intent or the context really doesn't matter. No one has an excuse. I'm still on the search for understanding our functional ideologies around game laws. In the last couple of episodes, we've talked with game wardens, undercover agents, and hunters trying to nail down our collective doctrine. And doctrine isn't what we say with our mouths, it's what we actually do. 
Most people would tell you that they're law-abiding, but when you really dig in, you might find places where they don't always hold to the letter of the law, or more commonly, where in the past they didn't. And sometimes people just mess up. And the more time you spent in the woods, the greater chance this would happen to you. We forget, we didn't know, we justify it this one time, or we just flat ignore a law because we think breaking it won't hurt anyone or the resource. I think we've got to be honest with our worst selves if we'll ever live consistently in our best selves. I hope these stories will fortify a culture of putting the resource first. Breaking the law is an easy thing. And here is an example. Once during muzzleloader season, I was walking to my deer stand in the pre-dawn darkness, and I planned to put on my hunter orange vest in the tree. You see, I got dressed at the tree trying to do all this scent control stuff. On the way in, I dropped my orange vest on the ground and didn't realize it until I was 25 feet high. The orange was like way back towards the truck. I was on private land with no other hunters, and I was bow hunting during muzzleloader season. I continued to hunt with just my orange hat, which didn't meet the square inch orange minimum. And that morning, I proceeded to kill one of the largest bucks of my life with my bow. Technically, I was in violation of the law. Am I a poacher? By the law, yes. But by every rational thinking human on planet Earth, I don't think so. It would have been more dangerous to crawl out of the tree and walk to get the orange at daylight than it would have been to stay in the tree and walk out midday. Have you ever left your tree stand up longer than you were supposed to on public land? Have you ever gone fishing for the first time of the spring only to realize you didn't auto-renew your fishing license? Have you ever dipped your toe across a fence boundary that you didn't have written permission to access? Have you ever party hunted as a waterfowler, which is basically a group working to get the collective limit of everyone on the hunt? Have you ever wasted meat? My intent in asking these questions isn't to soften our ideas about the law, but rather to strengthen them. And ultimately, I hope this conversation makes us be introspective about ourselves. That being said, and I'll stand by this statement, I don't have a history of intentionally breaking game laws. I've dedicated an incredible amount of energy to the point of paranoia to not break them, even before I was in the outdoor industry. I've never had a wild streak, and I grew up in a very law-abiding family, which I'm proud of. But by sheer volume of exposure, running around with the odd ruffian, being a dumb kid, and just being human, I've made some mistakes. Here's Steve Rinella describing the culture of how he grew up. I, like, I used to be reluctant to talk about some of this stuff because of uh, like fear of getting in trouble, like elements of, of hypocrisy, whatever. Sure. We broke laws all the time, okay? I could sit I could sit here and and just give you dozens of occurrences. Let me give you a couple for instances. In the spring, the rivers had come up, and sometimes the rivers had come up so high that it would flood out the muskrats out of their bank dens. It wasn't muskrat season. You were not allowed to shoot muskrats in Michigan. You had to trap them, mm. but we couldn't resist the temptation. We'd go out of the 22 and go out in the flooded swamps and get muskrats and just add them into the furs we sold the next year. Yeah. Okay. Cause who's going to notice like some 22 holes in some of them. I remember in high school, my buddy, Eric Kern, he's, he's no longer with us. My buddy, Eric Kern, we're dipping smelt. He caught a steelhead. Not allowed to do that with a net, stuck it in his waders. 
and carry it around in his waders, in the boot of his waders for the night. I'm talking like a 10-pound fish. Never in a million years that we had let that fish go. But there was some stuff we would never do. Would no way, no how, jacklight a deer. Spotlight a deer. We would jacklight rabbits, which is illegal. But never a deer. Wouldn't go over a bag limit. But you had to be 14 to hunt with a rifle. I started hunting with a rifle when I was 13. I shot a doe. My mom came out and put her tag on it. I would have gone down Mama and told Ronella. I would have gone down and told that story in school. It just right. It wasn't like you were being secrety. It was just it was like the attitude was how many deer are we allowed as a family? Tell us that. And then and then just leave the rest to us. Yeah. Right. And, and that's functionally the way they that it was enforced too. Am I right? It was like I, I don't know. I don't like we weren't checked by people. Just I could, I could go on and on like stuff that I'm like stuff that I'm ashamed about and and I'll point out my dad was a uh, like I, I mentioned my dad was a veteran his friends were veterans these are people who fought in World War II these are people who love their country right the most upstanding members of the community okay one of the guys down the road a, a veteran uh, he was a car salesman mentored me all through growing up. He fit. He lived with his wife, and his wife died, and he fished all the time. Couldn't eat that many fish, but he fished. I remember some days he'd fish 270 days a year because he kept a track of it in a notepad. Mm. How many fish can you eat? He sold his fish. Mm. He would encourage me to go sell my fish to the <laughs> illegal outfit that he sold his fish to. Was and it a restaurant? Would, no, it was a fish dealer, fish a, a fish market. Okay. And he would even advise me on how to negotiate the deals. Do you understand? These are not people that would have identified as poachers. Right. For, I don't know why. Oh, moving fish around? Dumping them into all their lakes and stuff? Like, you name it, man. Like, we, it was just everywhere. But there were certain lines you, there was like lines you didn't cross. I remember, I don't want to name the guy's name because I'm still friendly with his kid. The guy shot way more wood ducks than he was allowed one time and did a very sloppy job of cleaning them and just breasted some wood ducks and dumped them out in the woods. And we found them and told our old man about these wood ducks that weren't cleaned. And my old man went over there and confronted the guy. Mm. That was something you do not do. Waste again. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. But he would do all, my old man would do all manner of stuff you weren't supposed to do. Yeah. But it was like a spirit of the law, letter of the law. I really appreciate Steve opening up about his past It takes some guts to do that, and his intent is just to be honest. He nor I have nothing to hide. I have no doubt that people who've been involved in hunting and fishing their entire lives, and if they've seen a few winters, can relate. I know I can. And at the end of this podcast, I'm going to tell you my darkest secret. It's really not a secret. But here's Steve on ethics. It's a relationship with the game laws. It's hard to understand. I'll point out to people now, people like, we, we have all these conversations about hunting ethics. I'm like, man, here's a, here's a good way to get 95% of the way there. Follow the laws. We've codified our ethics in this country to a large measure. They change through time. At any given time, our ethics are, are mostly codified by law. If you want to be an ethical hunter, that typically means don't break the laws. Yeah. But my God, were they loose with the laws. 
growing up. And I was too because I was brought up that way. I had to later realize out of getting on board with the program, okay, mm-hmm. getting on board with the, the game management program that we're on in this country, right. the journey we're on with conservation, the journey we're on with game management, like getting yeah. on board with that. Yeah. And also, quite simply, frankly, when I was in my 20s, out of fear of being in trouble. Yeah. Didn't want to be in trouble. Cleaned up our act. I got the scared out of me by a game warden one time mm. who I knew was on to me about something. Mm. And that scared me pretty straight. You don't want to tell that story. I'll I, tell I, it. That, well, I, I really don't Let me tell, tell you what he you asked don't. me. Let me tell you what he asked me. You weren't allowed to use snares where I lived on land for land animals. He asked me if I'd been setting snares. I told him no. He then went through over a hundred traps in the back of my truck looking for one that didn't have a tag on it. He didn't like check one. He was like, I'm going to look through this bundle and I'm going to find a not tag trap and I'm going to give you a citation. And he didn't find a not tag trap to my surprise and his because mm. they just fall off sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I knew that guy knew something I'd done. Uh, you know, so that kind of scared you straight. Oh, on that stuff, uh, I had a fur buyer who would push snares on you. Mm. Catch more game. Licensed fur buyer. He's like, hey, why don't you take some of these? Mm. Bringing stuff in. Right, just pervasive, and there's no way you would. There's no way you don't like knowing where you grew up and how you grew up. There's no way you didn't have all those the same experiences. Yeah, you know, I, I had an interesting, interesting experience in that my dad was Gary Newcomb, who he he did he he always says he didn't grow up in a hunting family, and I don't like it when he says that because he did. My grandfather was a big quail hunter and bird dog trainer. What he means to say is he didn't grow up in a big game hunting family, mm-hmm. which he didn't. And so he was kind of a first, he he, he learned how to bow hunt on his own mm. and did all this stuff. And man, he was pretty straight laced and kind of came into the hunting space and realized that he was the only guy around that was actually trying to obey game laws. Mm-hmm. And he just had just kind of the right mix of following the rules and he was he was a banker he was in the community yep. that he felt like he needed to be an upstanding citizen in which was good and man we came out of the shoot with a very i mean i wasn't afraid of the game warden i was afraid of my dad so yep. it's kind of a different story and so i never wantonly broke game laws even though i did just because i was a dumb kid mm-hmm. you know a couple of times in coon hunting while we were coon hunting Twice deer were killed on coon hunts. Hmm, mm, Steve said. Well, here's the full story. I've never in my life set out to kill a deer illegally, ever. But one night, deep in the winter, when I was 17, we were on a coon hunt. I saw the glowing eyes of an erect-eared critter that hovered about 20 inches off the ground. I immediately whispered to my buddy with the 22 rifle, Coyote, shoot that thing. Within seconds, a shot was fired and the glowing eyes went out. Upon retrieval, it wasn't a coyote at all. Turns out it was a bedded doe deer. And it wasn't even legal to shoot a coyote at night, but I didn't know that. Rather than calling the game warden, which would have been the right thing to do, calling old Jimmy Martin, we stuffed the deer in our dog box and went home and skinned it. A second time, I was hunting with someone older than me on his land. And again, I think I was 17. We saw a pair of eyes on the hill 
And I said, there's one of your cows. He said, that's not a cow, that's a deer. I said, no, you're wrong, that's one of your cows. He proceeded to pull out his 22 pistol, take aim, and drop the animal from over 75 yards away. We walked up there, and he was right. It was a deer. He loaded the deer in the truck, drove to some dude's house that needed some meat, and no questions were ever asked. He dropped the deer off. Since that time, I've become more adept at identifying animals by glowing eyes. I'm ashamed of these things and learned a lot from them. Here's Steve. Man, it's hard to explain. Yeah. That, yeah, but there were there was a code, there were laws you would not break. I, I I don't know any of all the violating I just talked about. I don't know anyone in my family social circle that ever shot a deer in the spotlight or that ever shot a deer out of season. Right. That would have been that was Bad. one you didn't break. You would not do that. I don't know why. <laughs> I want to introduce you to the director of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. He's been on the Bear Grease podcast before. His name is Austin Booth. He's a former Marine, a lawyer, a pilot, and at the ripe age of 35, he's one of the youngest directors in the agency's history. And he's making some good waves in our state. Austin is also a lifelong hunter. Over the next 20 minutes, I'm going to ask him about the agency's philosophy of law enforcement, the status of poaching in the state, and the foundational ideology that regulates wildlife law. Here's Austin Booth. So what is the philosophy of law enforcement these days, and, and how, are we, how are we going after people that are breaking the law? So there's a whole lot of people out there that wrongly believe that the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is just out there to write tickets. That's not true. It is written into Arkansas law that all the revenue that we generate from tickets goes into the county schools in which really? we write that ticket in. So we never see a single penny of that money. So there's no quota on yeah, a warden to yeah. write a ticket. There's not. Would, would you say that's common for state agencies outside of Arkansas? I know of a handful of other states. There's probably more, but it's intuitive to see that a government agency having a monetary incentive to write tickets is probably a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So we don't see any of that money. All right. Well, Austin, if y'all aren't there to self-fund yourselves uh, through regulations enforcement, how do y'all approach this? We enforce regulations for compliance. At the cadet graduation for the cadet of wildlife officers we graduated last year, our Colonel, Colonel Brad Young, outstanding American, said, y'all are not here to write granny a ticket for being one day expired on her fishing license. Make sure she gets a new license. We're not focused on minor violations. We want to educate people and we want to enforce for compliance. Where we do get aggressive is on serious game violations. Mm -hmm. We issue more than 3,500 citations per year on average. We issue well over 5,000 warnings uh, mm. per year on average. So we really try to focus the lion's share of our enforcement work on major violators because they do materially take away from the resource. Mm -hmm. We had a case this year where a gentleman had what he called a deer garden in his yard where he had harvested 
over 40 bucks and, and had the heads out there in the sun cleaning them. We had a case this year, a young man in his early 20s who acquired over 1,300 points. Now, to provide some context for that, you only have to have 18 points to have your hunting license revoked. Hmm. Uh, and so he accumulated an unimaginable amount of violations. And you can't tell me that that's not a taking from the public resource. Yeah. 3,500 citations and 5,000 warnings a year. Those are big numbers. It's interesting to me that wardens aren't incentivized to write tickets. I think that most of us wouldn't have guessed that. It kind of goes back to some of our past discussion about a fundamental mistrust of power. This helps us view law enforcement differently and realize that this misperception is probably coming from our side. I want to get Austin's opinion on the threat of poaching in the big picture. In the big scheme of threats to North American wildlife, are poachers at the top of that list? And it's not really apples to apples to compare like habitat loss. So it's not entirely apples to apples, but I guess I'm trying to understand sure. how big a threat it is. Because sure. I think sometimes we can live in a bubble. Some of us, especially inside, the guys that are sure. real enthusiasts inside the outdoor space. Sure. Like I said it before, the cool kids obey the laws. Like that's what, that's the culture we're building is that we want to obey laws. We want, we're all on the same team. We want to see more wildlife. I don't want to kill 30 turkeys, but because sometimes in this space, we're surrounded by the, by the good guys in a sense, you don't see what's, I don't, I don't always see what's happening on the outside and is poaching a major threat to wildlife. It is. And to bring us back to the last time we were on a uh, podcast together, we were talking about ducks and GTRs. And you said in in closing one of the podcasts, you said that when an animal is treasured by people, it thrives. And so if you take that, that sentiment, the appreciation of wildlife and their role that they play in the ecosystem and in people's lives, that appreciation is front and center with the loss of habitat. And it's Mm -hmm. front and center with poaching too. Because the question as hunters shouldn't be, do we appreciate this resource enough to hunt it? It should be, do we appreciate, do we treasure, do we adore this resource enough to conserve it? And that tipping point where you go from consumption to conservation necessitates you looking at poaching as a horrible thing that detracts from from the resource. So are we losing more ducks, more turkey to loss of habitat? Absolutely. Than we are compared to, say, poachers. But it's a common foundation of lack of appreciation for the resource. Right. How do you think we remedy that inside the culture? Because it's clear... It's a clear worldview to me in a, in a, a compelling lifestyle to live a life that is in accordance with the game laws. It's easy for me to say that, too, because I have a pretty privileged life when it comes to hunting. But there's also, you know, I spoke about how there was a risk inside of me telling the stories that I've told the last couple of podcasts, the risk of it glamorizing, essentially rebellion against authority. Right. 
so there is some of that. How do we like projecting forward 25 years? Because you go back 25 years from 2022 and it was a pretty different world in this state. For sure, you go back another 25 and it was like a different planet. And today it's just different than that. I think and I think we've improved, but there's still some of this culture that values that. I don't know. What do we do? How do we build the culture to yeah. continue to progress? Well, I think there's lots of complex contributions to that that are This isn't a complex well, conversation, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> that are well outside what you and I can control. We need more stable households that have a deep commitment to not only making sure that young boys and girls make good grades, but that they're men and women of, of character. Mm-hmm. I think kids uh, and even adults need to have a better understanding of ecology and the importance of conserving not just individual species, uh, but also conserving the ecosystem as a whole. But I think the number one thing that we can do in addition to exposing more young people to the outdoors is doing exactly what you're doing on this podcast. And that's talk about the nexus of wild things, wild places and, and people and how these resources don't just exist to exist, but they exist for us to for us to steward them and to enjoy them and the only way to do that in perpetuity is to take care of them the best we can ready to win mother's day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family give the moms in your life an aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos she'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating Mom's Frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura Frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura Frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. 
They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. I want to get to the foundation of why we have game laws. This is language that we should all be familiar with and be able to wield in intelligent ways as we continue to carve out a stable position in modern society. Remember this, the public trust doctrine. So the public trust doctrine is one of the foundational pillars of the North American uh, model of wildlife conservation. And it is a repudiation of the European model, which uh, is essentially that if you owned a tract of land, that you also owned the wildlife that, that, that were on it. So you, mm-hmm. you can go back uh, hundreds of years ago, if there was a peasant that lived adjacent to royalty or some other aristocrat, and there was some way to prove that the peasant killed a deer that that came from the rich person's land, then they could be convicted for it. So, so private ownership, private ownership of wildlife. of wildlife. Yes. Yeah. The public trust doctrine repudiates that and says that there is such a universal interest in wildlife and seeing them flourish and the opportunity to enjoy wildlife that wildlife are universally owned by the public in the present and in the future. Now, that would have been radical doctrine that was unique to North America. Is that right? From a global perspective? Yes, that's correct. So I mean, this was something that was was part of what Shane Mahoney called American genius inside of the North American model of wildlife conservation that we, it's so counterintuitive too, because you would think if you wanted to protect something that you would cinch it down to centralized control and not let everybody else in on it. But we're saying everybody owns wildlife. So deer on my property, even though they're on my property are not mine. That's they're, correct. They're owned by my neighbor and by you and by people in Nebraska. That's correct. Yeah. And the context for the public trust doctrine, I think, is very important because a lot of it, the broad public support for it, was born out of the early 1900s when we had exhausted wildlife to extirpation throughout the country. And so from a conservation sportsman perspective as a country— we were picking up the pieces mm-hmm. and saying, how do we make this better? 
how do we not only increase wildlife uh, on the landscape, but also ensure that this doesn't happen to the next generation? So there was a big appeal. At that time, there was like, it made a ton of sense that that's what we needed to do. Yes. Are you saying that now there's voices that are saying that is not as relevant? Yeah, it has some challenges. Uh, it's met some resistance in other states, fortunately not Arkansas, but people are often tempted to think more about wildlife as an agricultural resource. There are some states where all animals in high fence farms, including native wildlife, are completely under private management and ownership. This is a new idea. Basically, high fences and privately owned native wildlife can threaten the public trust doctrine on which we've had so much success. Here's Austin on the impact of poaching on the system and a personal story. So when you think about the public trust doctrine and the success of the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation riding on the back of this idea of public trust, giving incentive for the common man to want wildlife to thrive on a macro scale. That's really what's happened. But someone that would infringe on those game laws would essentially be violating the public trust doctrine or stealing from it and just saying, I can take as much wildlife as I want. I can take more than I want. They're violating not just the wildlife, but everyone else. And so, I mean, that's the whole story of poaching that's hurting the whole system. And when someone violates a game law in the form of poaching, essentially what they're saying is that they believe they have a higher claim to that to that critter than yeah. than anyone else does. If we had that on a broad scale, our wildlife as we know it would wither and die. Yeah. Just to illustrate that, I'll I'll tell you a personal story. I hunt a lease in Arkansas uh, and put some work into it in the off season last year. And it was a thing for my eight year old daughter and I to go out there and work. And then when deer season got closer, you know, morning time before school or church, she would crawl up in my lap and I'd be drinking a cup of coffee and she wanted to look at trail cam pictures. Mm. So we had a good number of bucks out there. A lot of them were young. We were super excited getting ready for a season. And uh, then the rut comes around, there's no deer. And I, I just kind of chalked it up to, you know, mother nature, the rut being off it, it being warm. Right. And then, uh, the farmer that was there cut his beans. Uh, he was late getting them in. So he was late getting them out. And when he cut his beans, we found 11 dead bucks. Mm. There were no tire tracks leading up to them. All the horns were still on them. And so someone is shooting these deer just to shoot them. Mm. And my close daughter, to a highway. Yes. Very close to a highway. Yeah. And my eight-year-old daughter asked me, where did all the deer go, Dad? I said, well, somebody killed him. Well, did you kill him? No, honey. Who killed him? I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Well, they did this thing called poaching. And I explained to her what poaching was. And she said, are they going to get caught? And I said, I hope so, but probably not. And she kind of thought about it for a little bit. And she thought, well, if they're not going to get caught, can we or anybody else do the same thing? And to me, that's one, sad. Two, not only shows the amount of investment that people put into wildlife, and when somebody poaches, they're taking not necessarily the wildlife from them, but that investment from them. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, just the secondary effects of poaching on on how people, even my eight-year-old daughter, views 
institutions and how they should behave if they don't think that they're going to get caught. In my opinion, this is the most egregious form of poaching, killing for killing's sake. It's not hunters that do this. These people would fit into another category and don't deserve the label of hunter. I want to ask Austin about the other types of poaching that are going on today. Food scarcity is a real thing in Arkansas. But the poachers that we catch, the narrative of I'm poaching because I have to, that is non-existent. Mm. The people that the Arkansas Game of Fish apprehends for poaching, they oftentimes have night vision technology, thermal scopes, infrared spotlights, and there is a high level of investment and work and time that often goes into their hardened decision to violate the law. A hardened decision to violate the law. That's a place you don't want to find yourself. Austin is now going to explain the open fields doctrine, which governs wildlife law enforcement. This is another thing that would be good to keep in your repertoire. I bet y'all didn't know that I could speak French. So the open fields doctrine is the notion that if you have a wildlife officer uh, out there trying to enforce game laws, then they can freely cross from public land on private land. This is not just something that uh, the Arkansas Game and Fish came up with. This actually comes from the United States Supreme Court. It was a case in 1924, Hester versus the United States that said uh, special protection accorded by the Fourth Amendment in their persons, houses, and effects, which is in the Constitution, does not extend to open fields. And the reasoning there being from the Supreme Court, which was Open later, fields. Describe that terminology yeah, to me. I don't understand yeah, that. Th- that's where I was going with it, is that the Fourth Amendment protections generally revolve around things that you have an expectation of privacy in. Mm. That comes from the Katz case. The reasoning behind open fields is if you have a broad expanse of land, your expectation of privacy does not go to every single corner of the land, that that it's insulated around your dwelling and what the court calls curtilage. So Mm. like tents, trailers, cars that you have, that kind of stuff. Uh, And so Arkansas and nearly every other state, if a game warden is is trying to get after a poacher and they believe that there's a poacher on private land, then under the open field doctrine, they can go apprehend that poacher without a search warrant. They couldn't search the house without a warrant. They couldn't search a, a mobile home next to the house. They couldn't search a car next to the house. Unless they witnessed a crime happen and the individual ran so they into the house, saw that's and- completely different. But for for warrant purposes, if they have evidence or reason to believe that there's poaching going on on private lands, again out you know outside the home or or the curtilage of a dwelling place, then they can go hop a fence and try to apprehend that poacher without a search warrant. That's right, and the reason that's important is because the deer can cross the fence too. If our natural resources, especially wildlife, can traverse private property and public property freely, then it's important for uh, wildlife officers to be able to do the same to enforce the game laws. That's even more important going forward because if you look at the landscape, we're suffering from loss of habitat. 
right? And so as public land and private land become increasingly intermingled, it's a big deal to Americans that that game laws be enforced equally, that public land hunters are not more susceptible to game laws than, say, private land hunters are simply because of where they choose to hunt. And is that in jeopardy? Uh, not in Arkansas. Uh, but it, just in the... It's been undermined in other jurisdictions. It, how has that happened? They believe that the rights of rights of privacy in private property are more compelling than equal protection of the laws for private land hunters and and public land hunters. That's a tricky one, isn't it? Because we it all is. like we all respect the rights of private landowners, and we and we want I, that right one hundred percent. But in the macro picture of protecting wildlife, that's a that's a right that you know we kind of choose to give away in a sense. Yep. We didn't choose it, but but we're okay with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I want a game warden to be able to go on this guy's land and yep. enforce game laws. Right. And in the same way, you could do it on my land. I hope this conversation has given us a more robust understanding of wildlife law enforcement, and I hope it's making us evaluate our own relationship with the law. This next story is extremely personal and meaningful to me. At the time, it shaped my life, and it continues to do so. Here's me telling old Steve Rinella about it. How humiliating. I was bow hunting public land and had been walking for miles and miles and miles with a bow in hand, scouting, and I see a squirrel. And I mean, I'm, I'm not joking when I say this is maybe, ha- I maybe shot a squirrel with a bow two other times in my life. And I mean, and, and, you know, kept the squirrel. It is not something I make a practice of. But just on that day, at the right time, the squirrel sat there for long enough. I said, man, I'm going to shoot that squirrel. And I shoot that squirrel. Just at long shot. Like, I didn't think I'd hit him, you know, 25, 30 yards and just nail him. And the arrow goes through his hips. And I go up, and I actually sat there looking at that squirrel, just thinking, doggone it, why did I do this? And this ended up being a pretty formative moment in my young adult life for real because i made a conscious decision i was like man the meat's ruined you know broadhead through the hams of this squirrel Mm -hmm. and i just decided that i wasn't going to take it which i mean only i know if this is true when i say it but it's like highly out of character for me to ever do something like that and i walk out and on a i'm on a lonely stretch of public land no, I mean, you just don't see cars out here very much, much less a game warden. And I, I'm walking to the road, and I can see the road, and I see a car coming. And I, the, the car can't see me, and it's a dead-end road, Steve. So the, this truck is going towards the dead end. Mm-hmm. My truck's at the end of the dead end, and I see that it's a game warden truck. And when I saw that truck, I knew that I was going to be held accountable for what I did. And, mm. and to be honest with you, I knew that God was going to hold me to account of it. Because I could have just sat there. I could have just like hid in the woods until he turned around. Because there's only one way for him to come out. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I did that, that I would be in big trouble with somebody that I was more worried about. Mm-hmm. And I walked right out to the road. And I didn't know how it was going to come up. Like I wasn't going to bring it up that I'd shot a squirrel and left it in the woods. 
But I walk, start walking down the road, and sure enough, the, the guy is coming back, and he sees me. I could have stepped off the road, and he'd have passed right by me. And there was nothing. I didn't have anything on me that would have given away, and there was no, really no noticeable blood on the arrow. And he gets out, and he's like, hey, what you doing? And we talk. And he's a real nice guy. Since this time, he, me and this guy have become friends. I, I communicate with him. Every couple of years, I'll call him. Mm-hmm. And man, that sucker spotted a speck of blood on my shoe about as big as a Tic Tac, you know? I mean, just a tiny speck of blood on my shoe that I hadn't even seen. And he was all fun and games. And then he was like, what's that? And I looked down and I see that blood and he just turned stone cold. And I said, I shot a squirrel and I left it in the woods. I just straight up just told him what had happened. And he said, why'd you do that? And, and I just, I mean, I told the story I just told you. And he thought I was lying. Uh, he thought I'd killed something bigger yeah, and yeah. was hiding it or something. And he said, well, put your bow in the truck. We're going to go find that squirrel. And I just went, man, I, I don't know if I can find that squirrel. That, that, that country down there is thick pine plantations. I mean, like thickets. And it was way back. I've been walking for hours. And so I start saying, man, I don't know if I can find it. And he thinks I'm lying. Sure. And I'm just telling him the truth. I, I, I was so naive that I actually said, well, you stay here and I'll go get the squirrel. You don't have to come with me. I'll bring it back to you. And he was like, no, sir. You know, yeah. he thought I was going to. And I, I didn't. I was like, why would you, you want to follow me? This is going to be mm. torture. And then I realized, you know, later that he thought I was going to go hide something, you know, which yeah. was dumb yeah. for me. To, I wasn't a very good criminal. And anyway, luckily, I was able to go back to the squirrel and found it just like he said. And he goes back to the truck and we have a long talk. And while I skinned that squirrel on his tailgate, I didn't know the. Hmm. The the tail method or anything back then, I was just like pecking on it with a pocket knife, you know. It was at this point that the game warden issued me a citation for wanton waste. I was devastated and I deserved it. But if there's one thing I believe, it's this. Everything happens for a purpose. And if you yoke yourself to that purpose, as painful as it can be sometimes, 10 years later, you'll be glad that you did. At that time, I had, I had just started diving into doing some stuff in outdoor media. Mm-hmm. And man, I told him that. I said, man, I, I, I write articles about hunting. And I, was just, I, I wasn't trying to defend myself. The yeah. ticket was already written. But I was just like, this, you busted me at something that is not typical for me. And, uh, and he said, you need to write about it. He immediately said, just come out with it, Clay. I mean, we became buddies in that moment. And I talked to him for probably 45 minutes after that. And he said, the, what you should do is just come out with it. And so I went home and wrote an article that was published in a regional magazine. The article was centered around what I learned through the event. It revolved around a very unique section of the book of Proverbs about hunting and diligence. So... There's a verse in Proverbs in the Bible. It's, uh, it's Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 27 says, Lazy people don't even cook the game that they catch, but the diligent make use of everything they find. Mm-hmm. And man, what really, it was a major turning point when I realized that I had lost some diligence. And since that time, I've been diligent with mm-hmm. everything. 
that I've done to the best of my ability inside of following game laws and doing everything right. And, uh, yeah, I was ashamed of that for years. Well, I mean, I still am ashamed of it. But I, it was, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm sparing my own kids what I went through. I'm just from the get-go being that we just follow the rules. You might make a yeah. mistake, right? You might misunderstand something, make a mistake, forget something, I don't know. But we follow the rules. We talk about what they are, celebrate it. Um, that's like a new generation. Yeah, I, I don't like to tell. I, I don't like to tell the old. I don't like to tell the stories of growing up in a way that that's made to like celebrate it. Yeah, do you know? I'm just like, I'm saying like that happened. It, it, nothing good comes from that. Mm-hmm. It's arrogant. It's arrogant. You know. I'm glad there was a. I'm, I'm glad there was a, a sort of governor on it. Meaning that that there was a there was a real limit to what people would do. But it's uh it's just baffling and like a little embarrassing the degree to which just like this like you know better. Mm-hmm. In 2022, as wildlife and wild places continue to be jeopardized by shifting cultural value systems and the encroachment of civilization, our widespread adherence to getting with the program, as Steve said, will be key to the continued success of the North American model of wildlife conservation. We got to turn in poachers. We got to watch our own selves. We got to love the resource enough to sacrifice for it. Listening to the stories of my dad and hearing about Steve's upbringing, I truly think that we've come a long way in the last 30 years. It's my hope that the stuff I've done in media has carried with it a strong values, integrity, and character-based message. But I never wanted to paint the picture that I'm an ivory tower. A good dose of transparency is healthy, and I hope it tightens us down into positions of respect for the law. And one of my most valued practices is becoming deeply introspective and learning from mistakes. I can't thank you folks enough for listening to Bear Grease. Be sure to check out the Bear Grease merchandise on TheMeatEater.com. And please share our podcast with a friend and leave us a review on iTunes. Oh, 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 oh. That wasn't as good as Russ Arthur's. Right on, bros. Right on. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about 
going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease.